0: Give them a hand. Thank you, guys. And blink of an eye, they go from babies to preschoolers to singing to reading scripture in deep voices. And so we are grateful. And <laughs> how fast time goes by. We want to welcome everyone to church today. The singing was wonderful today, wasn't it? Um, uh, if uh, you are like me, I love all Christmas songs. I love the, obviously the Christian, the carols and all this. And I like the cheesy Christmas songs, you know, the Mariah Carey's and uh, the, the Wham! and Last Christmas and all of it. I love it. it it's a time where we sing those and um, so it makes Christmas a little bit more special than the songs that we sing. Sometimes I, if you've been to a ball game and you see at the Dodgers game at the seventh inning stretch, they're singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And I like to look around as we sing with 20, 30, 40,000 people, and people sing their hearts out, right? And uh, some are aided by having a few drinks, some just are waiting forward to it, and some are singing the harmony and the melody, and they love it. And there's something they love to sing about. And uh, really, in studies, it's shown that there is a benefit to singing together. But today, I want to encourage us that we want to have a reason for singing. Um, you don't want to just be singing for no reason, which is still okay for us, but we want to have the greatest reason to sing. Today we come together to sing about the birth of Christ. And it's, uh, it was heartwarming. Um, I'm sure for parents, as your kid was up here, it was a little bit of uh, stress. Are they going to sing it right? Are they going to hit the notes? Are they going to pay attention? But for a non-parent, for me to watch them and hear their voices... And to think that God hears all of our voices and our, our singing, um, like how we viewed them, like beautiful children singing. And even their mistakes are cute. Even when they are just standing there doing nothing, it's still something of uh, joy to see. And we see that, and today we see how important the songs are and really the reasons for our singing. You know, it is the... Uh, a uh, philosopher, Andrew Fletcher, who says, let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. There's a power in our song. There's a power in our singing. More than the laws that there are. And so you will see countries unite over songs. And people unite over the songs that they sing. And it will change them. And there's a uh, neuroscientist, Daniel Levitin. He talks about how music evokes a sense of wonder, awe for lots of people. And how true that is. And so if you are like me and listening to music out loud, listening to it in the car with your headphones on, uh, whatever it might be, but to listen to music, it changes our mood. And to listen to worship songs, the Christmas songs, it makes us pause for a second and think, why am I singing? Why does this change my mood? How important it is. You know, uh, just a little bit of, it's interesting in church history, in the Protestant movement, which we are a continuation of, You know, they emphasized uh, names like Luther and Calvin and Jonathan Edwards even later on emphasized the significance of singing together. And so when you come here and though they sound wonderful up here, they're just guiding us to sing together. It is so important that we sing, Um, that they would back in the days, they would gather in the first churches and they would gather to now sing together. So Wednesday night church would happen. And when Wednesday night, they would gather the church in early America, and they would practice the songs. This is, this is for everyone. And they would practice the songs that they would end up singing on Sunday. So they wanted everyone to be prepared. And so it wasn't just for the choir. It wasn't just for the worship leaders. It was for the whole congregation. You know, back in, uh, during the uh, Protestant time, the Reformation time, the Roman Catholic Church did not allow uh, the congregation to sing. And so it was part of the movement to now say everyone should have their own Bible and everyone should now sing. And so they protested and the Protestant movement came along because of this. And so now we see the significance of the song and why we sing at church and why we have our children sing at church and how listening to it moves us, and how important it is. Today, we, it is Christmas. Even we think about the reasons of why we ought to sing, and in the very famous passage that we, where you heard from the children, we heard from our youth, uh, Isaiah nine six, we see these four descriptions of the future Messiah to come, um, and we're going to look at those four descriptions of who the Messiah will be and who Jesus is as we look back now, and how those are the reasons we can sing, and we're going to kind of run through that here this morning. Um, he is described, and you know. Uh, Isaiah's time, and any time the prophets are written, the people's lives were in shambles. They no longer trusted God. Um, they kept the heritage just in, the, in name, and they said, oh, I am a follower of God. But they didn't practice it. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe in God. And so they as a nation were falling apart. They were being invaded. They were losing. There was insecurity. And it's in the midst of that fear that often the prophets would come, like Isaiah, and a judgment would come, but also a promise of restoration. And they were looking forward to now a son being born. And they would wait and wait and wait. And we, in, as time has gone by in hindsight, look back and we see now the fulfillment in the Messiah who was born. The descriptions of him, the four names that are given to him, gives us now the reasons to rejoice and sing. Number one, he is described as... Wonderful counselor. Can we say that out loud? One, two, three. Wonderful counselor. Um, Wonderful, in our word today, we use it in a very simple way, but really the actual meaning is that it leaves us speechless. If something is so wonderful, we are speechless. Our jaws are dropped and we say, I cannot describe it in my own language. It is amazing. We often describe it when we eat something good or drink something good or see something Uh, awe-inspiring, or a movie, or something like that. But really, this is a word that we use um, really often in the wrong context. It is something that leaves us speechless. And this is the description of Jesus, who will be born, wonderful counselor. Beyond understanding, too wonderful. One uh, commentator says, a supernatural counselor. One giving supernatural advice is going to come. During the days of Isaiah, many people now started... Trusting in idols and false gods of their neighbors. And they would follow whatever the trend was of the day to gain advice. And we see here, um, he was combating that. Isaiah 41, 28, for example, he says, When I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. He's talking about the false idols. And he says, they can't even give an answer. And you have a God who is a counselor, who is a wonderful counselor. Um, and how important it is to go to him. Some of you are old enough to remember uh, reading these Dear Abby columns that would be in newspapers. And Dear Abby, it started back in 1956, and it was an advice column written by a person um, who used the pen name Abigail Van Buren. She named herself after Abigail in the Bible, and then people would write in letters for advice. Dear Abby, Christmas is coming up. You know, my in-laws are coming. Um, They're messy, you know. My brother-in-law's coming. He doesn't clean up. He doesn't sleep. What do I do? What should I do, right? Or whatever the advice is. You know, my my son is supposed to sing, but he didn't go to choir practice. What should I do, dear Abby? And they would write questions like that. And advice was given all throughout. At one point, it was in 1,200 newspapers. And so we would read it back in the day. Some of you remember. Nowadays, they say that most people get their advice Um, Not from Dear Abbey, not from the Bible, but from, I was reading, from Instagram, right? Terrible place to get advice, right? Um, That someone is going to tell you what to do. You don't know who they are, what they are. You don't even know if they're real, but they're telling you to do this with your money, with your life. Uh, They're giving you bad advice. You ever get bad advice? You know, they tell you something tastes good. You go there, it's no good. They tell you, you should get bangs, it would look good. You get bangs, it does not look good, right? Um, and, And you get bad advice. Oh, you should put your money right now in this kind of Bitcoin, and you do it. And he said, oh, this was the end of it, right? And, um, and we've all heard bad advice, but here comes one that the, James writes in five: If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. He gives without reproach. He doesn't say, oh, now you're coming to me. Who do you think you are coming to me? You didn't listen to me before. He gives counsel without reproach the people were bowing down to false idols saying guide me tell me what to do what is my fortune but here is the God who says come to me the second description of God is mentioned of Jesus Christ is mentioned as mighty God mighty God we see here in that verse mighty having a meaning what does mighty mean it means to be strong it means to have ability It contrasts those that are powerless, those who have no ability. And so it is now a contrast of God, the Son of God to come, versus the idols they were bowing down to. Uh, For example, Isaiah 41, 24 describes the idols this way in this accusation. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. And I love that phrase, your work is less than nothing. And Isaiah the prophet is speaking out towards the idols and saying, your work, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. Less than, it's a negative. And so people are going, you, going to the idols for hopes and guidance and security, and they get nothing. It's less than nothing. It's a negative. The ESV translates it in such a strong way. And how often we lean towards things that gives us less than nothing to lean on something that is nothing. You know, it is R.C. Sproul who describes this phrase, this verse, this way about the mighty God. A particular description that is used here is the description of God as warrior who fights for his people, who rescues them out of slavery in Egypt, who crushes the entire Egyptian army and the power of Pharaoh, who brings down nations by his laughter because he is the Almighty One, the mighty warrior who fights for his people. The mighty warrior who fights for us, mighty God, so we could sing about him. Uh, There's a story of a man and his uh, young teenage son. The father would have these two idols erected in the home one was larger, one was smaller. And he would bow and pray to these idols all the time. And the son would say to the dad, why are you bowing to these things? These are made out of wood and stone. Why would you bow to these false idols? And the dad would um, reprimand him and say, no, you got to bow. They're going to answer us. And every night he would bow and pray to these false idols with hope. And one day the son got sick of it. He took a bat and he shattered the smaller idol into pieces. And then he leaned the bat against the bigger idol. And then dad came home from work. And dad sees it and he's irate and calls the son in, how dare you do this to the idols? And the son says, I didn't do it. it must have been the big idol, because look, the bat's on the big idol, I didn't do it. And the dad catches himself saying, you know the idols can't do it, it's just made out of wood and stone. And the son replies to him, exactly. You know, it is oftentimes we go to the things that are less than nothing we think of those things as so important. What others people th- what other people think of us, the possessions that we have, maybe the neighborhood we live in, um, you know, the status we might have somewhere. And we think, boy, this is so, so important. And we've seen this in the arts, we've seen this in real life, we've experienced it ourselves. These are actually nothing. They're actually less than nothing when it comes to the important things of life. The third description of The Messiah to come, Jesus Christ, he's described as everlasting father. Now some have gotten confused over this. Well, I thought the heavenly father is distinct from God, the son, he is. This is a description of a father figure. He's not now all of a sudden becomes the father, right? That's a heresy. That's a wrong teaching. The son to come, Jesus Christ, the Messiah to come, will fulfill the role of a father. The father figure is important. In our culture today, the father figure is very important. There's a sense of stability. There's a sense of now even discipline, protection, so on and so forth. But in those days, in biblical times, the father figure meant everything. The father was the one that would literally change the path of your life. If you lost your father, you would probably end up becoming a slave. If you lost your father, you had no security, you had no income, you had no, nothing, no one guiding you, and people would take advantage of you. So the fatherless was the most vulnerable back then, way much more than it is today. And so when this description comes of the Messiah to come as an everlasting father figure, it's a source of comfort. It's a source of security. You know, there's a book called The Father Figure Rather, the father factor, and it has four types of father wounds. And maybe some of us have had these father wounds, and yet our heavenly Father now plays that perfect role. You look at this list here of four types of father wounds. We see here the some people have had the never satisfied father. You got straight A's and B plus, right? Some of us are like, oh man, yeah, oh that's I know that. Oh, you scored 32 points. You had a triple double. How come you didn't have a quadruple-double, right? And we can say something like that. Oh, you sang great at the at the church, but how come you didn't sing the solo, you know? Why did you do this? The never satisfied father. The second is the time bomb, dad. The one that you don't know how they're going to respond. If they had a bad day at work, they're moody, they act different when they drink, and everyone, the whole family is on, walking on eggshells, I don't know. And the stress of that, the PTSD of that, the, the book that talks about how... Uh, It was like, they describe it as like after the the Pearl Harbor bombing, that they had a radar put out 5,000 miles, and any movement, everyone was so jumpy for a while, because they had experienced this type of trauma. And that's what these children might go through. Thirdly, is an emotionally distant dad, never talks, never hugs, um, never laughs together, never cries together. And then fourthly, is a physically absent dad, not there. He had left. He had abandoned. Or maybe just always busy with work. And everyone knows work is number one. Um, and so you see these descriptions. And that's today in our society. But back in those days, in Isaiah's day, and even in the days of Christ, the fatherless was basically almost an orphan. Of course, the mother would take care and do her best, but really they had no means to work, they had no means for an education, they had no means for any security. And so the father figure would come, and they would defend and they would provide and they would shelter the child. And how important that is, there's a story that came up just recently, a couple of days ago, of a principal named Jason Smith, there's a picture here you could look at, um, I'll let you guess where they live by his sweatshirt, right? It is not Orange County, it is Kentucky. um, Jason Smith is a school principal. I think it was a middle school principal. He meets this girl, and usually when you're in school, when you get called into the principal's office, it's usually a bad thing, right? You don't want to know the principal in that way. Well, this young girl, Raven Whitaker, in 2015, was called into the principal's office, and she would be uh, a familiar person. Always seeing the vice principal, but today she had gone over the top and she got called in for throwing yogurt in the, in the cafeteria across the room, making a mess. And she was so upset for something, she threw it, so it was something that got bumped up from the vice principal all the way down to the principal's office. He calls her in and he's now lecturing her, why would you do that? How could you do that? And he throws out a question, he says, would you throw a cup of yogurt in a restaurant? And her response shocks him. This young girl says, I've never eaten at a restaurant. He says, what do you mean? And she has lived from group home to group home to group home as long as she could remember. And she's never sat, uh, put foot and sat in a restaurant to have a meal. And that breaks his heart and he ends up talking to his wife and they adopt her. So Raven Whitaker now becomes Raven Whitaker Smith, and she had graduated. And they talked about this Christmas, how big and important it was, what a significant Christmas it was for them. He is not the biological father. He is not technically her dad. He adopts her and becomes now the father figure. And in the interview, she rejoices and says, oh, it's it's the most wonderful news she goes. I didn't know how to take it at first. That the prince, I would have to live in the principal's house, um, but other than that, I got used to that. And he is not like the principal. He's a wonderful dad and mom. And we knew it was meant to be. The father figure comes in. The father figure defends. The father figure provides. There's a sense of stability. And she lives in that. The last description we see here of Jesus to be born is described as the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. When you think of the word Prince, I don't know what you think of. Some of you think of the royal family, right? The Prince. Um, some of you think of Purple Rain, right? Prince. Um, I thought of Purple Rain more than the royal family. Um, um, shout out to Minnesota, right? Uh, Mike, no? Nah? All right. So, um, the word Prince here, it is... Uh, were not literally a prince, but it was a term that was used to describe a leader, a commander, a captain, a chief, someone who is in charge. And sometimes, you know, you would use titles for people. When you call someone, hey, boss, how are you? And you might talk to your mechanic and call him boss. He's not your boss, technically, but you kind of call him that saying, hey, you are in charge. And this is the title, he's the prince, he's the the captain, he's the chief, he's the commander, and what he brings is peace, shalom. Shalom is peace, but it's so much more than that. It's used as a greeting, but it's the word that means to be happy, to be safe, to be well, to be complete. Shalom is used also to describe a wall that is completed, and there are no gaps in it. You know, one of the uh, shows, YouTube channels I like to watch lately, and there was a Saturday night or Friday night, I was watching it with Sharon. This was our date, right? It was called, a a YouTube channel called The Outdoor Boys. Anyone watch The Outdoor Boys? Okay, well, it it had a million views or whatever, so you're missing out. (laughs) Outdoor Boys is a dad in Alaska, and he's got three little boys, and he goes out, uh, and he does by himself, and he goes into the middle of nowhere, and he makes, uh, uh, you know, shelter, and he makes fire out of nothing. He gets food, and he cooks, and he often takes his boys, In the episode we were watching, and these are like an hour long. But he spends the whole time, he feeds the boys a bunch of junk food. And Sharon was commenting, oh my gosh, it's all junk food, not even brushing their teeth. You know, and mom had dropped them off. And she's gone, and he's just like, Yeah, marshmallows, marshmallows, marshmallows. Now, sitting there, be quiet. He's like, I got to chop this wood, and he's just chopping wood. And he's going to make now a shelter out of wood. And the video is fascinating because it's fast forwarded, and he spends all day till it's night putting up this wood wall. And he now erects a little shelter. And then he says, it's going to get really cold tonight, and then the kids are in their bag, they're sleeping, they still haven't brushed their teeth, you know, it's bothering my wife, but it's okay. And now he's taking mud and he's just putting it in every gap. They don't care. The kids don't care. They'll probably have cavities, but they don't care about the gaps in the wall. The dad is filling the gaps. He wakes up and he checks, oh, and he's putting it in. It protects against fire, the smoke. It protects against the wind. It protects against the rain and the snow and the elements, even the animals. And so it was a safe thing once he had made it. And so kids are just sleeping, and the dad is plugging every hole and saying, I will protect you. And at the end of it, after they sleep one night, they tear it apart and they go home, right? That's the channel. And that, I thought, was a picture. Here we are enjoying ourselves in the middle of danger, in the middle of hardship, somehow, the Prince of Peace, our Heavenly Father comes, the Everlasting Father, and Jesus Christ comes, and he's plugging the gaps. And we go to sleep. In a difficult world, a difficult time. And he plugs the gaps, and he is now the one who brings peace. And we can just enjoy. And it is a fun time, because someone else is now putting up the shelter, and we have the shalom here. As time has gone by, as we are getting older, I realize more and more how difficult the holidays can be. As many have lost loved ones, it's a reminder of how things were and how things are different. How life is so hard. And isn't that true? If we take a survey here with all of us, it would be stories of hardships that we had endured, that you had endured, even in this year, in this season. And somehow, we come and we can sing because the Prince of Peace comes. And he knows that the elements in life is hard, but he now becomes our peace. And so we put our trust in him. I close with these words, John 14:27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Romans 5, one. therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the story of a peace that we have with God and within ourselves. Our prayer for you today on this very special Christmas day is that you would receive that peace from Christ. And all you got to do is ask and say, God, I want to follow you. Lord Jesus, it's been a long time. I want to start walking with you and he shows up. You could say that anywhere, anytime. And he hears you here. The Prince of Peace is here with us. Could I ask you, could we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the birth of Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for all that he means. Wonderful Counselor, mighty God who is able. The Everlasting Father who protects the Prince of Peace, Who puts us at ease. So, Lord, we have now the reason to sing. Jesus Christ, you are the reason we can sing and bring glory to you, so we thank you. God, as we sing these songs, would you hear them? God, would you change our hearts as we sing these songs? Would you give us a, a jolt of your presence in our lives? And may the promises of Emmanuel Hit home for us again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.